0: Welcome to Worship with Dawson Memorial Baptist Church. At Dawson, we seek to be found faithful as God's people as we become and help others become faithful servants of Jesus Christ. Now join us as we worship God through the teaching of His Word in today's message. Well, good morning. It's good to be with you today. Uh, my name is Scott Guffin, and uh, typically when I would go speak at a church, I would start off with something like this. Um, I bring you greetings from Sanford University. Uh, but I almost think that that would be a, a little bit unnecessary today because you guys have our president and our former president and our provost and our chairman of our trustee board and faculty members and staff members and students, including some of my students here. So I can't even bring you greetings from the Department of Christian Ministry. So... (laughs) So, um, hi, I'm Scott. I'm just going to do that and and we'll go um, from there. I am going to ask you this morning to turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians 5, verses 14 through 21. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 21. Also, in my years past as a pastor, on days like today, I would say, welcome to the fellowship of people who had nothing else to do. (laughs) Well, that's okay. We, we're going to do something great. We're going to look together in God's Word, and we're going to learn hopefully some powerful lessons for our lives today. Um, as you're turning to the uh, passage we're going to look at, I want to ask a question, a little bit of a personal question. And uh, feel free to respond and uh, raise your hand if, if this, this fits you. Uh, do we have any control freaks in the room? <laughs> Anybody? Yeah, a few people who raise their hand and they're honest. I saw some husbands and wives pointing at each other, and that's okay too. We understand, and we do. We have some people who are, you know, control freaks in almost the clinical sense of being control freaks. I understand that? Uh, but to an extent, I think we're all kind of people who crave control, aren't we? Now, I mean, is anybody in here the kind of passive person who wants everybody to make the, the decisions for them? Anybody? Uh, are you okay with other people determining your life and your path and everything that's going to happen to you all the way through to the very end? Most of us are not. In fact, if given the option, most of us would be pretty self-determining, wouldn't we? We would choose what we're going to do with our lives. We were going to. We would choose where we're going to go. We would choose where we're going to live. We would choose how we're going to live. We would choose what our vocation looks like. We would choose how well we do and what position we hold. We would choose how our investments do. We would choose how the market goes. We would choose if our team is going to be the team that beats the other team, Alabama Auburn, right? We would choose if our person's going to win the election. We would choose for the price of gas to be a little bit lower than it is right now. We would choose whether or not we're going to beat those other people to lunch today. Right? We would choose those things because really down deep, we all kind of crave some level of control. And yet, I want you to think about that Specifically, in regard to what is the, the 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 central confession of faith of the Christian the Christian faith our central confession of our faith. Now, I'm going to let you kind of guess and I'm going to give you the first two words of our central confession of our faith, our primary confession of our faith. I'm going to give you the first two words and I'm going to let you guess the third word, okay? Let's see if you can do it. Here are the first two words. Jesus is... Yeah, you did it. Good. Jesus is Lord. This is the primary confession of faith for us as believers in Jesus Christ. And I want you to think about that term for a minute. The, the word Lord has is, is almost become like a, a title that we've given to Jesus, right? Uh, but, but here's what the word really means. The word Lord is the same word that we translate in the New Testament as Master. When you see Jesus telling stories about masters and slaves, when you see Paul referring to masters and slaves, the word master is the word that we translate as the same as Lord. And what's interesting about that is, yeah, there, there's a part of our confession that is uh, you know, universal in nature, that Jesus is Lord. The Philippians 2 tells us that there's coming a day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. that there's a kind of a cosmic expectation that universally everyone will do that. But for us as believers, it's a very personal confession. Is declaring that Jesus is my Lord personally. That Jesus is my Master. And I want you to think about that term Master. We understand that the term Master refers to someone who owns someone else. To someone who has the ultimate and full and final control over the life of another person. And so when we declare Jesus is Lord, the central confession of our faith, the most primary confession of our faith, we're declaring Jesus has ultimate control over each one of us. Did you know that? Now, Paul pretty much acknowledges that in the passage we're going to look at this morning. In fact, Paul begins with these words in verse 14 of 2 Corinthians 5. He says, "...for the love of Christ controls us." The love of Christ controls us. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And all this is from God. Through Christ reconciled us to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Now that is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are Christ's ambassadors. God making His appeal through us. And we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. As we walk through this passage this morning, I want you to note right up front, in the first couple of verses there, verses 14 and 15, Paul makes the statement. He says, the love of Christ controls us because we've concluded something. We've concluded something. We've given it careful thought and we've come to a conclusion. And here's the conclusion. That one has died for all, therefore all have died. Now this is not a universalistic type statement. How do we know that? He says, because He died for all, verse 15, and He died for all that those who live. Those who live. Paul's putting some parameters around this. He's saying he died for all that; those that therefore all that have died are those who have put their faith in Christ and have found eternal life in Him. Those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for the sake of Him who died and was raised. This is very reminiscent of what Paul says in Galatians two twenty when he says, "I've been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live." but Christ who lives in me. So Christ's love controls us. Christ is living through us. It's no longer our life. As our Master, He controls. Now what I want to do this morning is look at what Paul has to say about how Christ's love controls us. He has a few things he says here, and we're going to walk through them beginning in verse 16. In verse 16, Paul says that the love of Christ controls us by giving us a radically new regard for others. Christ's love controls us by giving us a radically new regard for others. Look in verse 16. From now on, therefore, he says, we regard no one according to the flesh. Paul further confesses, we we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, but we regard Him thus no longer. Now I want you to focus in on that term regard. It's a Greek word we also translate as, as know, like perceptual kind of knowledge. Like I see something and I know what it is or I see someone and I know who they are. And here, Paul says that that God has in Christ changed our way of perceiving people. Have you ever thought about how we perceive people? What the processes are that cause us to determine what we think about people? In the realm of social psychology, there's a term called person perception. And this refers to the mental processes we go through when we see somebody and and our vision of that person then forms impressions about that person. And from the impressions that we form, we make snap judgments and then we make value judgments about those people. Have you ever given any thought to how you view people? How you perceive people? There are a lot of different ways we do as human beings. One, one way that we do is just by physical traits, right? We look at somebody, we see their, their age, we see their gender, we see their body size and shape, we see how they look, we see how they dress, and we make value judgments based on those things. Uh, we make judgments based on social categories. Things like ethnicity and social class. Uh, apparent educational, or vocational status. We look at people, and, and based on those things, we make value judgments about other human beings. We make value judgments based on observed behavior. We hear how someone speaks. I'm, I'm from the South. I was born right here in Birmingham, so you know English is my second language. And so we, we make judgments about how people speak. We lived in Indiana for about five years, and we would speak, and people would go, talk so we can hear you talk. They thought we were from Texas. Uh, uh, But people do. They make value judgments. We make value judgments based on how people speak. We see how people interact socially. We see the activities they're engaged in. We watch for their personalities and we make value judgments based on those things. We make judgments based on their connections. Oh, you're a part of that family. Oh, you went to that school. Oh, those are your friends. Oh, that's the group that you're a part of. Oh, that's the team you cheer for. Right? And we make value judgments based on all of those things. And yet, Paul says that in Christ, His way of seeing people and perceiving people and the value judgments He makes about people have been transformed radically as as Christ has given Him brand new lenses through which to see people and life and the world. Paul says that His previous lenses were flesh lenses. And in Romans chapter 8 and Galatians 5, Paul says that we're constantly wrestling flesh against the Spirit of God. The two are in competition with one another, he says. And when we cede control to the flesh, we view people and life and everything through the lenses of the flesh. But when we cede control to the Spirit, we put our mind on the things of the Spirit, we see according to the lenses that God has given us. And Jesus Himself says this is how we are to see others in a radically different way. In fact, listen to the words of Jesus out of Luke chapter 6. This is Luke's um, recounting of the Sermon on the Mount. Luke chapter 6, verse 27 is where I'm going to start. Listen to what Jesus says about how we ought to view each other. This is a transformed view of people. He says, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. Now I'm going to tell you, already I'm having trouble. How about you? Anybody? Is it just me? I'm already having trouble here. Because look what he said. He said, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. You know what my flesh tells me when I see somebody who's an enemy? I want to oppose you. That's what I say. When I see somebody who's an enemy, my flesh jumps up and says, I'm going to oppose you with everything in me. What about when somebody hates you? What's your inclination when somebody hates you? You know what mine is? Hate them right back. That's my inclination in my flesh. And yet Jesus says that we're to be transformed. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. He continues on. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes your cloak, don't withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you and from one who takes away your goods, don't demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. but love your enemies, do good, and lend expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great and you will be the sons of the Most High. For He's kind to the ungrateful and the evil." In his book entitled The Triumph of Christianity, a guy named Rodney Stark described how in the uh, 2nd and 3rd centuries, Christians made an impact in the world of the Roman Empire around them based on how they dealt with people. Which was also based on how they viewed people. You see, in the 2nd and 3rd centuries in Rome, there was a horrific plague. A horrific plague that swept through Rome. Modern day scientists think it might have been smallpox. And listen, we just came out of an epidemic, right? Um, two, two and a half years in length, and that was long enough, and I never want to do it again. But but this, this plague, this epidemic of smallpox, the first time around in the second century in the Roman Empire lasted 15 years. 15 years. And killed as many as a third of the population of Rome. In the middle of that, the people of Rome responded as most of us would. In fact, the renowned historic uh, physician Galen, um, his response was much unlike our uh, medical heroes of today. Uh, Galen's response was this, I'll see y'all later. In fact, Galen left the city of Rome and went out to his uh, palatial country estate and he said, y'all call me when it's over. But guess who stood up and helped in the midst of this horrible epidemic. Listen, this was bad. People were, when their family members were getting sick, people were taking their family members and they were leaving them out in the street for fear that they themselves would get the contagion. And that people were dying of neglect before they could even die from the illness itself. And in the middle of that, Christian people who viewed other people through the lenses of the grace and the love of God. You saw people as as those who were created in the image of God stepped up and they cared for the sick and the dying. And estimates are that they may have saved as many as a third of the people who succumbed to the disease. What ended up happening, you guys know your history, I'm sure, is that Christianity by the 4th century had become the official religion of the Roman Empire. And a lot of that was based on people seeing how Christians dealt with other people. You see, here's why Christians could do that. Number one, Christians had hope in a life beyond this one. So if they stepped up and they helped somebody, and they died as a result of it, they knew where they were going. And so for them, it was more important To do the thing that God had called them to do than even to spare their own life. But the second thing was they knew that they had been commanded by God. They'd been commanded by God. These were the words of Christ. They were to care for other people and that was far more important than even their own health and safety. What ended up happening was this. Some Christians did die. They did. A lot of Christians died. They became ill and they died themselves. But that was okay because they knew where they were going. And just like us today, they celebrated the home of those who knew Christ. But another thing that happened is some Christians didn't. They didn't die. In fact, they got sick and then they got better. And the Roman people would see these Christians walking around, now immune from the disease, almost in miraculous ways, caring for people and tending to the needs of those who were desperate. And what they said was, we want to be like that. We want to be like those people. When the plague came around 100 years later in the 3rd century, Christians did it again. And by the 4th century, Christianity was the official religion of the Roman Empire. Later in the 4th century, Another emperor rose up, Emperor Julian, and he wanted to make paganism the official religion of Rome once again. And he wrote a letter to his pagan priests urging them to become more like Christians so that people would respect them. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? Can you imagine what a difference it would make in our world today? if Christians viewed people like that. They would look at us and they would say as the King James says it in 1 Peter 2.9, you are a peculiar people. I like that translation. You're a peculiar people because of the way that you see other people. Going back to our passage, Paul says that very thing. Paul says we are a peculiar people. In fact, the next passage we're going to look at, verse 17 of 2 Corinthians 5, he says we're a peculiar people because of what has happened to us. He goes on to say, Christ's love controls us by reminding us of our radical break with our past. Look at what's happened to us. Look how different we are. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. You're not a reformed person. You haven't just gotten better. Your behavior hasn't just changed. You are a new creation in Christ Jesus. The old has passed away. It is dead and gone, he says. And behold, the new has come. And in verse 18, the very beginning, He says "And all this is from God. All this is from God. Y'all, we serve a God of the new. Amen? We serve a God who is a God of the new. He's the God of rebirth. In Romans 5, it says He's the God who demonstrated His love for us in that while we were still sinners, He sent Christ to die for us. A couple of verses later, it says that this same God saved us and reconciled us to Himself through the death of His Son while we were His enemies. In Ephesians 2, it says that this God is the One who while we were dead in our trespasses made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus so that in the coming days He might show His immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Farther down in Ephesians 2, it says that He brought us near to Himself through the blood of Christ Jesus when we were separated from Christ, when we were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. This is the God who brought us from death to life. This is the God who brought us from darkness to light. This is the God who transformed our status from slaves to sin and death to sons and daughters of the Most High God, sons and daughters of the King. Now, several years ago, I I preached at Sixth Avenue Baptist, and this is the part where I'd have to stop so they could calm down, right? But listen, y'all, this is exciting stuff, this is powerful. And maybe you're not shouting out here, but I hope you are in here. I hope there are amens flying in there. But here's the truth. I think sometimes we have forgotten about how powerful this message is. Sometimes we have forgotten what Jesus Christ has done for us. And we need to be reminded again and again and again in in my kitchen. And and listen, uh, I'm going to get in trouble. I I forgot to say my wife and my mom are here today. That's pretty exciting for me to have both my wife and my mom. And, and in, in my kitchen, my, my wife has set up a digital frame. Have you seen a? You know what a digital frame is? It's one where you can download all the photos to it and the photos just kind of cycle through. And we got all these pictures of family, but there's one picture I love it when it comes up. It's a picture of a young Scott and Beth Guffin on the day that they made their vows and said, I do, and we're walking up the central aisle on the way out of the church and the photographer took the picture of this young couple and they're so joyful and they're so happy and they're so full of promise and they're so excited and they're so passionate and they have so much hair. (laughs) They do. And I love it when that picture comes up. It just kind of renews the passion. It reignites that passion for my wife. Listen, folks, when we are reminded what Christ has done for us, that's what it does. It reignites our passion for Him. And when our passion is reignited, it reorders our priorities to line up with His. And when our priorities are reordered, it redirects the pursuits of our lives. And we need that because I think sometimes that we've forgotten. Why do I think we've forgotten? Or maybe we haven't forgotten, but it's just become mundane and boring to us. Well, I think that because we're not out there talking about it. I think that because I don't hear Christian people sharing this powerful message with other people and bringing them to hear about it themselves. In fact, if I were to follow you around this week, if I were just to fly on the wall and follow you around and listen to all your conversations, would I ever hear you speak the name of Jesus? Would I ever hear you share one time with one person not just this week, but maybe this year, the good news of Jesus Christ and how He came and lived a perfect life and died for us on the cross, taking our sin and our shame with Him and then rose again so that we might have life. But I hear those things. You see, I'm concerned. We need to be reminded of what Christ has done for us. A third thing I want you to see very quickly is that that Paul also says that Christ's love controls us by calling us to something. In connection with being reminded we are called to something, we are called to a radically new ministry with a radical message attached to it. Go back to verse 18. Paul just said we are new creations and that all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation." Now what's reconciliation? Reconciliation is restoring relationships. That's what reconciliation is. And the way we're talking about it here, this context, it means restoring broken relationships. Now, as Brad shared with you, I was in pastoral ministry for 32 years. I did a lot of counseling, a lot of that marriage counseling. And what happens, honestly, when when you're a pastor, people come and they sit down in your office and in one hour they want you to fix what they've been breaking for 35 years. That's what they want you to do. And you can't. And so what you do is you kind of triage and then you send them to somebody who can help them long term, who has the training to do that. And the hope, the goal, is always the restoration of relationship, right? Reconciliation is always the hope and always the goal. Paul says this is the work of God. This is what God has been doing in the world. Look at verse 19. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And He's entrusted to us the message of reconciliation. He goes on to say in verse 20, therefore we're ambassadors for Christ. God making His appeal through us. And He says, we implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. That's a radical statement. And it's a radical ministry to which God has called us. Now, I want to talk about that for a second, though. Because we understand what God has done in reconciling the world to Himself. He sent Jesus, and Jesus died, and Jesus took our sins on Himself, and He gave us the opportunity to be reconnected with God, right? And so when he says, I'm giving you the ministry of reconciliation, is he saying that we go and we, we die for people, that we carry their sins on ourselves and that somehow through us they can be saved? No. No, he's not saying that. Number one, we don't have the capacity to do that. We're not Jesus. And number two, it's already been done. No, our part, our role in the the ministry of reconciliation is that we are to be pointing people to Christ and connecting them through Christ with God who loves them and desires to be with Him in eternity. And Paul says that we've been given the message of reconciliation to do that. The message of reconciliation is in verse 21. Verse 21, he says, For our sake God made Him to be sin who knew no sin, that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Basically, he's saying Jesus, God sent Jesus to take the weight and the penalty and the punishment of our sin upon Himself in its entirety with the intent that we as human beings might exchange our sinful brokenness and lostness for the perfect righteousness of Christ. That's an amazing message. Paul thought it was amazing. In fact, Paul was pretty enthusiastic about it. Look at verse 11. If you got your Bible open, go back to verse 11. No, that's not part of the passage we're looking at this morning, but go back to verse 11. There Paul says, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. When he says knowing the fear of the Lord, he's not saying being afraid of God. He's saying knowing what it means to revere God, to be in awe of God, to worship God. He says knowing what that's like, we persuade other people to be connected with Him, to be reconciled to Him. And folks, listen, in a lot of Christian circles, we've taken that word persuade and we've made it a dirty word. And yet, Paul here says, knowing what it is to fear the Lord, we persuade others. If you go down to verse 20 after he says that we are Christ's ambassadors, we are representing God to the world, he says God is making His appeal through us. And what is the heart of that appeal? Look at the rest of verse 20. He says, we implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. Do you know what that word implore means? It's a synonym for beg. When was the last time any one of us begged another person to come to faith in Christ. When's the last time any of us persuaded someone or even sought to appeal to someone? And look at the power though, the tone, the nature of those words. Persuade. Appeal. Implore. Beg. Be reconciled to God. And why would we not? Why would we not? Why would we not be persuading and appealing and imploring? Do we really believe that there's one of two places that people will end up in eternity? That there's a heaven with God, that there is a hell separated from God that's a place of punishment? Do we really believe those things? If we do, why would we not be persuading and begging people to be reconciled to God? There's a book I want to point you to. Um, in fact, I would encourage you to go out and purchase a copy of it. I don't get anything off of it, by the way. Um, it's written by a guy named Os Guinness. Os Guinness is a, a, an English-American Christian writer and social commentator. He's written a lot of books on politics and things like that. But um, he, he, he wrote a book in 2015 entitled, Fool's Talk. Fool's Talk. Subtitle of it is Recovering the Art of Christian Persuasion. I highly, highly recommend it. In that book, he argues that uh, we in the church today have, have either gone the route of, of trying to win people through market-based approaches or uh, you know, sales-based techniques or finding those to be entirely ineffective. We've just kind of thrown up our hands and we've given up entirely. And he urges us as Christ ambassadors, as ministers, as messengers of reconciliation, to recover the art of Christian persuasion. Now, I'm not going to lie to you. It's hard. It's a challenge. We have a world that we face today that less and less wants to hear what we have to say. Guinness says that to first century Christians, their challenge was this, that they were introducing a message that was so novel that it was strange to its hearers in the Roman Empire. He says our challenge today is different. Our challenge, listen carefully, our challenge is to restate something so familiar that people know it so well that they don't really know it and yet somehow at the same time they are convinced that they're tired of it. Did you hear that? Our challenge is to restate something so familiar that people know it so well that they don't really know it, and yet at the same time, somehow they're convinced that they're tired of it. But Guinness goes on to say that Christian persuasion is an inexpressible privilege. A costly challenge. And a demanding lesson well worth learning. So what do we do about that? That will be the part where I give you like, here are eight quick ways to... No, I'm not going to do that. Because that's what we're fighting against, right? Uh, But here's what I am going to do. I want to give you some direction to think about. In fact, you've got the summer ahead of you. I'm going to give you three goals for you to start pursuing in regard to this idea of being a person who is controlled by the love of Christ and as someone who has been changed by the work of Christ in your life, going into the world and serving as an agent of reconciliation in the world around you. Three ways that you can begin to pursue this. Number one, become unfailingly relational become unfailingly relational. Now, at the, in the South, we're really good at being personable. Personable. How you doing? Right? We don't really care, right? But how you doing? What we need to do is learn the art of being personal. Which means we are seriously focusing on growing real relationships where we're getting to know people. In those relationships, we need to learn to be gracious and kind and compassionate in our dealings with people. We need to become insightful in regard to people so we know where people are and how to approach them. And we need to be patient enough to play the long game with people. I'll give an example of what I'm talking about. Years ago, I did some prison ministry. I was talking to one of the guys who was working with me. He said, tell me your story. He said, my, my church in Kentucky... Visited me for six years every Thursday night, except holidays. Six years. I said, Brother, I'd have given up on you in six weeks. All right. He said, six years. He said I did everything I could to stop him. I would come to the door with a beer in my hand. He said, I come to the door with my boxers on. I tried to stop them. He said they wouldn't stop. And one night, six years into it, it clicked. He said, and Christ changed my life. The long game. In addition to becoming unfailingly relational, I would say let's become unflinchingly biblical. Most Christians today are biblically illiterate or right on the border of it. When I started the Christian ministry program six years ago, I asked seminaries, what can I do to prepare people for seminary? I said, please teach them the Bible. Students are coming to seminary and they don't know the Bible. And it's filtered down into the pews of our churches. We need to learn the Bible in its entirety. We need to understand the big story behind all the small stories. We need to become fluent in the Gospel. And by that, I mean that you understand it, you can speak it easily, accurately, and effectively. And then third, in addition to becoming unfailingly relational and unflinchingly biblical, we need to become unapologetically vocal. Paul said in Romans 1, I am not ashamed of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. This doesn't mean that we become offensive, but it means that we become unafraid to speak the good news to those who are dying to hear it. Would you commit to something like that? Would you commit to maybe just those three things? To letting the love of Christ control you? Let's pray. Thank you for joining us today. To learn more about our family of faith or to learn how to become a follower of Jesus, please visit dawsonchurch.org. Until next time, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all.